We are so blessed to be able to start the day, start the week singing these songs. Uh, I can remember in my early 20s, uh, after the Lord had really changed my life, changed my heart, changed my life, I uh, would be, we'd be gathered sometimes on Sunday evenings in uh, the service, and it was typically a, a shorter kind of prayer service, but in some of those services, we would have sort of hymn call-outs. Uh, maybe you grew up with that sort of thing, where we would just raise our hand and suggest a hymn, and we would sing that hymn uh, as, a, as a church. And "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus" was one that I always went to. Uh, what a blessing to call out to the Lord for greater trust, to call out to the Lord to help us in our walk with Him and our trust in Him. And uh, we think about the man whose son was possessed by a demon, and he, he says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we find ourselves in that position, uh, always. We find ourselves struggling in all kinds of ways, and we need to cry out to Jesus for greater trust. I pray that you are trusting him this morning. And uh, our text for today is going to be Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. So if you'll go ahead and go there in your Bibles. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 12. This morning we come to the very well-known passage of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. And you've heard me say this before, but to me, it is always exciting to come up on these famous passages and to see how they arise out of their context. You know, we, we get these passages, we see them, we read them, they're in the Bible stories. Uh, but it's great to be able to let them emerge out of their context so that we really have all the, uh, the background right there for it as we come to it. it. It enhances our understanding of what the text is about and what, we, what the Holy Spirit has for us from it. So, so far, we've seen the suffering of Israel under Egyptian slavery. We've seen the early prep, preparation of Moses, and part of that preparation is God's removing of him from Egypt. And last week, we saw Israel's anguished prayer and God's active response. So, we read last week God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. All of these verbs describing the active and attentive response to the prayers of his people. And so we just cannot miss the way in which what we're going to look at today emerges out of that previous passage. And it tells us just simply that God hears our prayers. We had a men's retreat this past weekend, and uh, we talked about prayer. The whole weekend was about prayer, communion with God, intercessory prayer, prayer as warfare. And we're reminded in this passage in Exodus of how God listens to us when we speak to him. We're never, as we pray to God, speaking into the air. We're never just sort of doing this kind of reflective self-help thing. We're never just sort of meditating on life so that we can articulate it and understand our situation better, period. We are talking to the living God. And that is what we saw with Israel. They are talking to their God, and God listens. God hears. But, as we said last week, God did not give the Israelites any immediate indication that he had responded to their 
prayer. We see nothing there. The Israelites are crying out to God. We, it seems to be an escalated uh, amount of suffering. It seems to be a very intentional, directed crying out to God. It seems to be a collective expression of their grief and prayer to God. And yet in the moment, immediately they receive no response. They had to wait. And the same is true of all of us as God's people here this morning. We too must wait in faith. Just as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we are those who walk by faith, not by sight. We simply cannot see God. And we can't see all the ways that God is working. By his grace, he shows us oftentimes many of the things he is doing, but many we do not see. We walk by faith, not by sight. And this faith is informed by the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. As we think about the scriptures, you know, we were reading Joshua before, and some of these old texts, these ancient texts seem so distant from our lives, but the more we immerse ourselves in the Bible, the more we enter into the story of God's people. And the more we appropriate those promises that God has given to his people, the more we immerse ourselves in the story world of the Bible, the more our faith in God grows. And the more we are able to live by faith when there is nothing to see. This morning, we come to God's response in action. We come to God's response on the ground. If last week was deliverance anticipated, this week is the deliverer calls a deliverer. That's the title for the sermon this morning. You'll see that up here. The deliverer, it's hard to say, the deliverer calls a deliverer. The divine deliverer, God, in this passage for today, calls a human deliverer, Moses. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. We're in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Now I'm going to pick up at chapter 2, verse 23, because I want you to see the text that we had last week, and I want you to see how this leads into our passage for today, how what we find in our passage today is God's active on-the-ground response to what he had already determined in his own mind. So here we have chapter 2, verse 23. This is the word of God. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So that's what we looked at last week and now for this morning. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, 
God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of God. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as his word is preached and heard and that God would help us to work through this sermon, to labor, to understand, to labor, to as far as we can, to retain it in our minds and to actively, prayerfully ask that God would apply it to our hearts and be attentive as he is doing that even in the moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you do by it. We thank you that we fight the devil with it as Jesus taught us when he was tempted and as we are told by Paul that it is the sword of the Spirit. We thank you, Father, that it searches our hearts down to the very depth. It shows us our sin that we might purge ourselves, that we might by your grace, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, that we might flee from the sins that ensnare us, that we might flee from the sins that wage war against our souls. Father, would you help us now as we come together around your word, as we sit under your word, Lord, that we would submit to its authority, that we would hear the voice of Christ as you tell us, as Jesus tells us that his sheep hear his voice. We know him and he knows us. Father, we pray this morning for this flock here at Four Corners Church, that you would strengthen our love for you and for one another, that you would strengthen our love for those in the world who do not know you. God, that what is revealed here this morning from your word would equip us for every good work, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit in the season. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow because of our time together this morning, Lord. May this time not be in vain for a single soul. May there not be a single soul in this room who is just checking out or just getting through this sermon or getting through this service. Speak to us, we pray, O God, through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
as we take in this scene from chapter 3 of Exodus, this scene of God speaking with Moses at the burning bush, this well-known scene, we find that these first 12 verses hang together. It's always difficult to determine how much uh, to preach and where to stop and all of that, but these first 12 verses really do hang together. They center, on the one hand, on God's announcement that he will deliver Israel. So verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's the, the centerpiece of these 12 verses. God says, I will deliver my people. But they are also, on the other hand, centered on God's call or commissioning of Moses to act as the human deliverer. And so we find in verse 10, these words, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That just reminds us as we're moving into this passage that God carries out his purposes by means of his people. I mean, think about that. As we read the story of the Exodus, we know that it is all about the Lord. God is the one who did it. God brought the plagues. God sent Moses. God parted the sea. God provided manna in the morning. God split rocks to provide water. He did all of these things, but he did it by means of his people. And that is incredibly humbling because it tells us that God calls us today in the 21st century, his people, he calls us as the instruments, the premier instruments, the means, the method that God has chosen to use to bring change in the world, to carry out his redemptive plan, to carry out his redemptive purpose in this world What great calling God has called us to. Wherever we are serving, however we are serving, we are called by God to be a means of carrying out his purposes. So we see these two things, the deliverer and a deliverer that God calls. And this passage gives us three focal points to consider. And these will be our points for this morning if you want to write them down. So three focal points to consider as we see God calling Moses in this passage. So first we see the Hebrew shepherd. And for that, we'll really just look at verse 1. Secondly, the holy God, verses 2 to 9. And then finally, the heavy calling, verses 10 to 12. So that's what will occupy our time this morning. So let's begin first with the Hebrew shepherd. Look with me again at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is not already the mountain of God. This will become the mountain of God when Moses returns there later with this massive amount of people, around two million people. He will come to this mountain in Midian and there God will give him the ten Commandments. So it is, it is called the mountain of God because of what it will be. And of course, Moses is writing after those events. So he goes ahead and refers to it as the mountain of God. I won't hover too long on this verse. 
There's a lot here to cover, uh, a lot particularly in verses 2 to 9. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time here just on the first verse. But there is something very important that we need to notice as we come to this first verse. Moses is presented here as thoroughly Hebrew. We have to get that as we move forward. Moses is presented as thoroughly Hebraized, we could say. Thoroughly Hebrew. We've already seen this emphasis in chapter 2, killing the Egyptian, the Egyptian slave driver. Moses sees a slave driver beating one of the Hebrews, and he chooses to uh, identify with the Hebrew slave, and he kills the Egyptian slave driver to rescue this mistreated slave. We saw it again with Moses trying to mediate between two Hebrews in a fight. Why in the world would Moses care if he's an Egyptian at heart? Why would he care if two Hebrews are fighting it out? They can kill each other for all I care. That's what most of the Egyptians would have said. That's what those in the Egyptian court would have said. But not Moses. He tries to mediate between these two Hebrews and call out the wrong of the one who is mistreating the other. So Moses sees himself as a Hebrew. He identifies with his people rather than with the Egyptians, the most powerful people on the earth at that time. Though he was brought up as a prince of Egypt, Moses has chosen to be with his slave people. You just can't get over that. It really is. I mean, so we, we know these stories. They're, they're so familiar. We read over them quickly. Oh, yeah, of course. But it, that is astounding. Moses raised for 40 years in the palaces of Egypt all the grandeur, all the pomp, all the, the pleasure. And these Hebrews are at the lowest of the low. And he would rather be identified with them than the Egyptians. And we know how significant this is from Hebrews chapter 11. So the New Testament tells us that we can't ignore this point. We can't go over it too quickly. We need to hover here for a bit. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Interesting, Christ had not come yet. It just goes to tell us how active Christ is in the Old Testament and how much the hope, the promises of the Deliverer are present in the faith of the Old Testament saints. So he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we know from that what is in Moses' heart, what God has done, we should say, in Moses' heart. But here in chapter 3, we see what God has providentially done in Moses' life, what God has done in Moses' circumstances, what God has done to thoroughly Hebraize Moses. And so I want us to make three observations here as we come to verse 1. Three observations that show that God has thoroughly Hebraized Moses in preparation for what he's about to do. First, Moses is now a shepherd. 
Moses is a shepherd, keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And we are told in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, that he has been one for over 40 years. Think about that, 40 years. I mean, that's, that's about the amount of time that you, that you think of someone's career. Someone's career from maybe their mid-20s, just thinking about getting out of college in you know, mid-20s to mid-60s. That's, a, that's an entire life's work. Uh, that's, that's basically a, a full career. That's what I did with my life. That's, that, that was my occupation. That's how long Moses has been at this shepherding business. That's how long he has been tending these sheep. Not only has God removed Moses from the opulence and pleasure of the Egyptian royal court, he has also made Moses thoroughly un-Egyptian. Notice that. He's made Moses thoroughly un-Egyptian by making him a shepherd. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 46, verse 34. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Isn't that interesting? God hasn't just removed him from all of the temptations and allure of Egypt. He's also made him something that's definitely not Egyptian. He arrives at the well and he meets Reuel or Jethro's daughters. And they go back to their dad. He rescues them and saves them from the shepherds who are not allowing them to get water for their flocks. They go back to their dad and they say, an Egyptian helped us. An Egyptian rescued us. There's nothing Egyptian about Moses anymore. Second, and I owe these next two observations to my wife, Jennifer. A couple of weeks ago, we were sitting having coffee on a Monday afternoon, and we were just talking about Exodus, and she brought up both of these points. I thought, man, I have got to bring that into uh, the sermon when I come to the beginning of Exodus 3. So these were totally her observations. Uh, I have to cite her on these. So these next two observations show that Moses has been thoroughly, or yeah, has been and is being thoroughly Hebraized. So first, God has made him like a mini Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Like the patriarchs, he lives as a sojourner. And like the patriarchs, he lives the life of a shepherd. The image that you have of Moses as we come into chapter 3, verse 1, is much like the image that we have of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we're going through all of those narratives in Genesis, they have these flocks, they're tending these flocks, they're looking for wells. This is the sort of life of the fathers, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For 40 years, Moses has lived a life very similar to his Hebrew forefathers. And just as Jacob kept the sheep of his uncle Laban, Moses watches over the flock of his father-in-law. So he has become, in essence, not only is he, is he thoroughly un-Egyptian in that he is a shepherd, but he has become like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons as a shepherd. Third, God has placed him in a Midianite family. Of all people, of all people that Moses could have been sent to and could have settled with, God has placed him in a Midianite family as the son-in-law of a Midianite priest. Now, why is that significant? Well, we don't know much about Midianite religion at this point, but we do know that the Midianites come from Abraham through Keturah. 
So it is reasonable to conclude that Midianite religion would have emphasized Abraham and his relationship to God. We don't know how much Midianite religion had been polluted by the pagan peoples. Undoubtedly, that is probably the case to some degree. But it would be hard to believe that this Midianite religion would not have come forth from Father Abraham. Abraham is the father of Midian and Midian's descendants. Certainly, in this context, Abraham would have been the talk of the tents. He would have been the talk of the town. Abraham was the one thing that united Moses historically with the Midianites. So not only does the Midianite religion probably go back to the religion of of Abraham, the worship of the everlasting God of El Shaddai, of God Almighty, but also the, the only linkage that Moses has as a Hebrew to the Midianite people is this distant, distant figure, Abraham. So not only is Moses walking around like a mini Abraham, but he is also probably talking of him often. So to sum up, Moses has been away from Egyptian court life for 40 years. His occupation, a shepherd. His lifestyle, much like the patriarchs. His context centered on Abraham. Moses has become thoroughly un-Egyptian and thoroughly Hebrew. And God has done this by removing Moses from his people. Now that is, that, that doesn't jive with common sense. We, we don't tend to think about that. If God is going to thoroughly Hebraize Moses, he would do that by putting Moses with his people. But that's not how God did it. Moses' people are enslaved. God removes Moses from his people to make him like his people. Removes him from his people so that he would thoroughly become one of his people. And that just tells us that God's means, God's methods are often surprising. And to us, in our limited view of reality, even incomprehensible, uh, we, we just can't, get, we don't get it. We don't get the reason why God does the things that he does. The life of faith is a life of surrender to God's wisdom. There's no peace, no peace for the person who's constantly trying to figure out all that God is doing. No peace for the person who who feels as though they, they have to understand in order to believe. The famous church father, Augustine, said, I believe that I might understand. There are many things we don't understand, uh, many questions that we have, many areas of the Bible that leave us scratching our heads and wondering, and we press into those with faith. We know we are limited. We know we don't understand all that is going on around us, but God works in ways that are beyond our understanding. His ways are above our ways. And so the life of faith in this God is a life of surrendering ourselves to his wisdom. God, you know best. Not me. You know best. And so that's the first thing we see is the Hebrew shepherd. Secondly, we come to the holy God. This really is the core of this passage. One of the common features 
that we find in Genesis is the theophany, this phenomenon called a, a theophany, a visible manifestation of deity, a, a visible manifestation of God. That's what a theophany is. And we see this throughout the book of Genesis. As we were going through Genesis a couple of years ago, we saw this repeatedly for, those, for that two-year period. God was frequently coming to his people. God coming to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God speaking to them personally. God appearing to them in visible form. Theophanies. Well, that's exactly what we find here at the burning bush. It's as though we're just picking back up with the patriarchs, really. It has been a long time since God has spoken directly to his people, since God has manifested his presence. In fact, it has been about 430 years. Imagine that. God had worked in all of these imminent ways with the patriarchs, and then for 430 years, he doesn't. And we see a similar thing uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the intertestamental period from Malachi all the way up to uh, the, the ministry of John the Baptist and Christ and the writings of the apostles. We see this space of time. God's people called to trust him even though they are not hearing from him. The last time this happened was Genesis 46. Verses two to four, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So that was the last time that God spoke to his people in that way. So as we begin to look at this theophany, this visible manifestation of God at the burning bush, we need to see three things that God does. As we take verses two to nine and try to understand what is being conveyed here, we need to, under, we need to see three things that God does. So first, getting Moses' attention. Secondly, establishing the relationship. And third, conveying the message. So that's what we find within these verses. So let's look at each of these. First, getting Moses' attention. Read verses two to four with me. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Moses talks to himself. I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Well, this will definitely get anybody's attention, and it gets Moses' attention. A small bush appearing to burn in the middle of the wilderness the fact that he notices it suggests that it happened in the dark. So maybe it's uh, evening is coming on or it's middle of the night or it's very early in the morning. But the fact that he sees this does suggest that it is dark. And while the bush is burning, it is not being burned up. There's fire there within the bush, but it is not catching the bush on fire so that the bush burns. 
And in this dry climate, you would expect it to go up quickly in flames. You expect this little bush. This is not a large tree, by the way. God is coming in these very humble ways, as we see in a manger and other places in the scriptures. It's just a little bush, maybe a little thorn bush. We see it is not burning up. This is a strange happening. It is miraculous, and it, get Moses, it gets Moses' attention. It's always funny to me to watch these uh, documentaries that try to explain everything that we read in the Old Testament from sort of a naturalistic, scientific kind of standpoint. Those who want to make the crossing of the Red Sea through this marsh that happened to dry up, you know, over uh, some time, and it just so happened that the uh, that the, the, the Land was dry there, and so they were able to walk across. Isn't that what the Bible says? The Bible says that God split the sea, and there was a, a wall of water on both sides. This is a miracle. You can't explain what happens to the Egyptians with the plagues by looking at some kind of volcanic eruption or some, some other sort of thing. This is the power of God. This is a miracle. And it gets Moses' attention. And when Moses turns to see the sight, he also hears a voice. This is the angel or messenger of the Lord appearing in or as a flame of fire. Verse 2. And it is the voice of the Lord, also referred to as God in verse 4. So what do we do with this? Well, here... The angel or messenger of the Lord is being identified as the Lord himself, as God. We saw this, this figure, this mysterious figure in the Old Testament. We saw him in Genesis, this angel of the Lord figure. Is this a created being, as we tend to think of the angels? Is this a created being whom God uses as an instrument, much like he's using Moses, whom God uses as an instrument of revelation to his people? An angel, say, like Gabriel or Michael. Or is there something different about this malach, about this messenger, this angel? Something different about this individual? Well, we see here that this messenger is being identified as the Lord himself, as God. We saw that with Hagar, Genesis 16, with Abraham on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, where this mysterious character, the angel of the Lord, is identified there in the language as God himself. And since the early church, early on in Christian history, many have understood this to be the second person of the Trinity, a Christophany. Uh, who is standing at, Moses, uh, at Abraham's tent in Genesis 18? It's the Lord plus two angels. The Lord? But God is not corporeal. God is not, he does not have a body. God is invisible. God is spirit, as Jesus says in John 4. So who is standing there? Who wrestles with Jacob? I have seen God face to face, Jacob says. Who comes to Hagar, the angel of the Lord, and speaks to her? Who is it that calls out to Moses I mean, to Abraham, as he is going to sacrifice Isaac, and God tells him to stop. 
So many have identified this angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord with the second person of the Trinity, distinct from God and yet one with God. And this is very interesting because it prepares the people of God for two things. It prepares God's people to understand the incarnation, that God became man. These are These are visible manifestations of God. These are not incarnations that we find in the Old Testament. They're pre, you could call them uh, times when the pre-incarnate Christ is revealed to God's people. God is preparing them to understand the incarnation. He is preparing them for the revelation of the Trinity. We see the Trinity from the very beginning of the Bible. Let us make man in our own image. God speaking all things into existence. God and his word and then his spirit over the face of the deep. We see the Trinity throughout the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it will be revealed clearly. And here we get instances of God preparing his people for these glorious truths. So God gets Moses' attention with a sight and a voice. That's the first thing. Secondly, we see God establishing the relationship. So look with me at verses four to six. God establishing the relationship. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Here, God establishes the fact that he cares for Moses. This is something that could be easily overlooked. But when God calls out to Moses, he says his name twice. Moses, Moses. And we find this throughout the Bible that when the name is called twice, it suggests love and care. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, or it it at least suggests an expression of love or care. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord. They'll they'll say to, to Jesus, Lord, Lord, I know you. I know you and I did these things for you. And Jesus will say, no, you don't. You don't know me. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. We see it at the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Twice. We see it often throughout the Bible. You could go through and catalog these, but it suggests this this love and this care. It is an intimate address. And what that tells us is that when God speaks to Moses, packed into that, in that ancient Semitic culture, is this tone of love, this tone of I am about to do something for your good. God establishes that he is holy. The word holy simply means set apart. Moses must keep away. God says to him, do not come near. This is not a run up and hug the bush moment. This is not get really close. And God speak right into his ear kind of moment. Do not come near. 
God says to Moses. That's interesting. Uh, these two things accompanied, uh, two, uh, joined together. Moses, Moses, love and care and intimacy and stay back. Distance. Stay back. And he must remove his shoes that have walked upon the dirty ground. Moses is now on holy ground. Prior to this moment, guess what? There's absolutely nothing holy about this ground. It's a bush. It's a bush in the middle of the Midian wilderness. Nothing special at all. But now God is present here specifically, making himself visibly known in this place. Holy ground because God is now present. The Lord God of heaven. And it is clear to us that Moses gets it. As we see in verse 6, that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses gets the point. He stops. He takes off his sandals. He gets on his face and he hides his face to make sure that he will not look at this holy God. We see this. You may think, well, it's because Moses is a sinner. Of course, That's a huge part of it. And we see that later uh, throughout Exodus with Mount Sinai and the people are to stay back and we see it with the Holy of Holies. And when Christ comes, the veil is torn and we enter in and we come boldly into uh, God's presence at the throne of grace to find help in time of need. But we may be tempted to think it's just because Moses is a sinner. If Moses were not a sinner, he could just roll right up on this theophany. The interesting thing is that we see the angels doing the same thing in Isaiah 6. They cover their faces. They have a lot of wings. And with two of them, they cover their faces. God is holy. And God is beyond us, whether we were sinful or not. God is holy, holy, holy to the angels. God was holy, 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 set apart to Adam and Eve, and especially to those of us stained by sin and apart from Christ, utterly estranged from God. You have no basis for coming to God apart from Christ. Only through the blood of Christ can anyone think possibly that they could pray to this God and know this God. He is holy, The holiness of God is accompanied naturally by the fear of God. We see this here with Moses' reverence and awe. And his removal of his sandals is quite like our removal of sin. When we come to God, we remove the pollution of our lives. We come to God confessing our sins. We remove that pollution before his holy face. Christian, be reminded today. In this superficial Jesus on t-shirts, silly Christian culture, be reminded today that the one you call Father is holy. He is holy. Never forget that Abba is holy. He is the holy God. We see this in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 19. You don't get this sort of thing talked about very much in our watered-down, superficial, American, evangelical, Christian culture. 
This is what Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. By the way, he's speaking to Christians in Christ. Christians who have the blood of Christ covering them and Christ's spirit within them. He says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then listen to these words. And if you call on him as father, we want to make much of that as we should. But listen to Peter. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear like Moses throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How is it we treat God as holy? We get rid of sin. We say no to sin. We walk away from sin. We repent of sin. We confess sin. No other way says God is holy. You can say God is holy until you die. You can pray it over and over again. And you can evangelize it over and over again. But until you are committed to purging your life of sin, you're not saying God is holy. You're not professing God as holy. He is Abba. But he is holy. Finally, God establishes the fact that he is Moses' God. He is the God of Moses' father, of the patriarchs. Moses is a Levite. He is a son of Jacob. And this God who is revealing himself uh, says this in verse 6, that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, God is saying to Moses, I am your God. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Levi. I'm your God, Moses. And finally, under this point, the holy God, we see that God is conveying the message. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Well, what are we reading here? This is exactly what we saw at the end of chapter two. God has seen, he has heard, he knows. He is attentive to the suffering of his people. So what is God's response? He sees their suffering. He sees their oppression in Egypt. He sees the way they are being treated by their task masters, their slave drivers. What is his response? I have come down to deliver them, to bring them up. That's what God will do. God will fulfill the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. And he will not just rescue his people. 
we see that. We're going to read about that as God brings the plagues down on Pharaoh, brings the plagues down on the Egyptians. And finally, God with a strong hand will lead his people out after Egypt has been decimated by plagues. And we remember in the middle of the plagues that the servants of Pharaoh and everyone else is saying to Pharaoh, stop, listen to these people. There will be no more Egypt if this continues. God will do all of that in rescuing his people, but he will also bring them into the promised land of Canaan, a rich and fertile land, as it says here, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the imagery, as we often find with wine in the Old Testament, this is the imagery of abundance and fertility and prosperity. God's going to shower them from this fertile land. God will replace the various wicked Canaanite tribes with his own holy people. God had it that the Canaanites would build all the cities And then God, because of their sin, would wipe them out and put his people in those cities. God would populate Canaan with his people. Walls not built with them, by them, fortifications not built by them. God would bring his people into this abundant land. A people called by his name, a people with his law, a people delivered by his mighty hand, a holy people for a holy God. You know, it really is amazing if we just stop at this point and look at, look at all the things we learn about God from these verses. By the way, why should you read the Bible? To know God, period. To know God and to do his will. And in doing his will, we know him because we walk with him. That's the reason we read the Bible is to know God and to please him to have a relationship with God. The most important thing we can ever ask of a passage of scripture is what does this teach me about God? So just quickly, what do we see about God here? He reveals himself. God is a God who makes himself known in space and time to real people in real concrete ways. We have the scriptures. God reveals himself to us in our own way through written text. He cares for his people. He is holy. He keeps his promises to his people. He judges the wicked. All of that is packed into this theophany that Moses receives at the burning bush and so much more. But those are just the things gathered up off the surface. You don't even have to dig down for those bits. They're just right there on the top. Just put, sweep them up. Hold them before your face. Behold your God, Christian. If you do not know this God, behold him as your judge before whom you will stand one day. And through Christ, you will stand righteous. Through Christ, you will stand forgiven. Finally, this morning, we come to the heavy calling. We've looked at the Hebrew shepherd and the holy God. Now we come to the heavy calling, verses 10 to 12. Let's look there together. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, so far up to verse 10, 
Moses is tracking with the Lord. He's on board. But then we come to verse 10. I will send you, Moses. Oh, wow, me? You will send me? You're going to send me for this great task? You're going to send me for this heavy responsibility, for this heavy calling? Me? This is Moses' response, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. We know from this expression, who am I, which we also find in the mouth of David. We find it in other places uh, in uh, the Old Testament. We know that it is an idiom. Who am I is, is, is an idiom. It's a, it's a saying. It's a polite expression in that day and time, in that culture. It is a humble gesture that expresses respect. But we also know from the context that it is a genuine rebuttal from Moses. Many have pointed out that this is the first of several arguments with God. That Mo- so Moses sees God as holy. He hides his face, but he doesn't have a problem arguing with God. It's amazing. We see that in our own lives. So he, later in the context, he's challenging this calling. God, this is, I don't think this is the best idea. I think there's probably a better way to do this thing than sending me. So we know that it is a genuine rebuttal. We know this because of what Moses says. Because by the time he gets to the end of it all, he just says, oh God, send somebody else. Moses does not want to do this. Moses does not think he can do this. And this really is, it marks a big change in his life from his earlier days. You can see how God has humbled Moses. Early on, he's brass, he, he goes out and he kills this Egyptian. And we're told in Acts that he had actually seen himself at that time as a deliverer. You know, he probably had a chariot that he had ridden uh, quite a while. As an Egyptian, he had uh, seen people bow down to him. And, you know, he was kind of proud of himself, kind of full of himself. A lot's changed. He was also 40. He's now 80. He's just a shepherd guy. These aren't even his sheep. They're not even his sheep. They're his father-in-law's sheep. Moses has not had a successful life. It just hasn't gone well. It has not produced much of a resume. A big change from Moses' earlier days. And here Moses feels absolutely incapable of doing what God has called him to do. I think this reminds us that God will often call his people to do what they think or feel they cannot do. God loves to do that. He loves to call us to do things that we we are just certain we can't do. We're just not wired that way. We don't have those talents. That's just not natural for us. Why does God do that? Because he gets all the glory. God does that because he gets all the glory. Moses will never, in all of that, that God will do. Can you imagine standing there in front of a sea and you're the one who holds up the staff and it parts and you turn around, there are two million people following you. 
Oh man, Moses could have been filled with pride. There probably has never been a greater human being on the planet who has held the kind of gravitas, the kind of weight of Moses. God would never let Moses forget that it was all God. And that's the way God does for us. But it's a gift. It's a gift because he's protecting us. He's protecting us from our pride. So do not be surprised, Christian, when God calls you to the seemingly impossible. God calls you to something that you just feel totally, utterly incapable of doing. Well, we know from the language that Moses has his eyes in the wrong place. What does he say to God? Who am I? Who am I? God's answer is essentially this. What does that matter? That's God's response to us. When we say to him, who am I? God's response is, who cares? It doesn't matter who you are. Verse 12, I will be with you, Moses. Period. I will be with you. We find this throughout the scriptures as God speaks to his people. Joshua 1.5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Jeremiah 1.8, I am with you. We find it all over the Bible. This is the message to all of us from our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the Great Commission. This is the, the, the last message of Christ to his people. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How could we do anything if God were not with us? How could we wake up in the morning and go to work? How could we raise children? How could we do anything God has called us to to serve his people if God were not with us? But he is, and Jesus tells us he will be with us until the end. All that God has called us to, we can do. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. The wrong question is, who am I? The right question is, who is the Lord God of heaven? Matthew 19, 26, Jesus says, with God all things are possible. With God, all things were possible for Moses, and with God, all things are possible for us. The end of the ages has dawned on us. In many ways, we are more significant in the scope of redemptive history than anyone we read about in the Old Testament. Because the end of the ages has dawned on us. Christ has come, and he has given us his spirit. The ascended Christ has sent his spirit into our hearts. We do not come to God through a temple. We come boldly into his presence anytime we please. We are the temple of the living God. Finally, in addition to assuring Moses of his presence, God tells him that he will give him a sign When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's what God tells Moses. You will serve God on this mountain. That is the mountain near the bush. From serving Pharaoh to serving God. That's what's going to happen. This is a future sign. As we finish up this morning, I want you to see this. This is a future sign. It is not one that is immediately received. 
God doesn't say, now we know God does some things later, but God doesn't say to him with regard to this sign, with regard to this calling, God doesn't say to him, here, let me do a sign right now for you so that you'll know. God says to him, I'm gonna do a future sign and this is how you will know. What does that tell us? It requires Moses to press on in faith. And that's exactly where we are this morning. Gathered here in this building, Christians, followers of the God of Israel, those who have trusted in Israel's Messiah, those who've been grafted in, we must press on in faith. God has told us that he will be with us. God has told us what he will do, and we must lean into it by faith. And praise God that we have this faith from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. You are most holy, 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 holy. You have always been holy. You are set apart from your creation as the self-existing, eternal, infinite creator God. The angels cover their faces, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Lord, in our sinfulness, we fall on our faces before you and we recognize, Lord, that we in so many ways are not holy, as Peter tells us. We are attached to this world. We are filled sometimes with pride of life and lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh. We, we fall into these ways of thinking and speaking and loving and doing. Father, help us remember that we are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But our delight is in you, in your word. We thank you for giving it to us this morning, and we pray that you would be with us now as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate this new covenant through Christ's blood together. In Jesus' name, amen.